We are going to jump in. Uh, grab your Bibles. Uh, we are going to start. We're in the next chunk of John chapter 4. And it is a long text. It's 42 long verses. It's a four-minute read to get through this. Uh, but it's important that we read it all. And so I'm going to encourage you to follow along. If you've got your own Bibles with you, you can follow along. Or you can watch. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well. So here's where we're headed. This story, uh, which may be familiar to some of you, Jesus and a conversation with a woman at the well. So when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, uh, uh, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I've got food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So the reading of God's word. It's a long text, and it is a thick and a dense text. So last weekend, we had four preachers at the various campuses uh, and preaching the same text. And I had the privilege of being able to listen to three of the messages, couldn't get to all four of them. And what was very fascinating to me was that all four of the guys were assigned the very same text, and yet the three messages I heard were distinctly different one from another. Uh, they were all good messages. They were sound messages. They were true to the text. And yet each preacher took a different angle on that text last weekend. And what we've just read in John chapter 4 gives the very same challenge. Uh, you can imagine in these 42 verses, there are so many different directions that we could head in this text. If we just jumped into just the first six verses, there's enough there for an entire study. Because there is so much history on this particular chunk of real estate where this conversation takes place. I don't know whether you know it or not, but this is where Abraham landed when he first came into the promised land. It was right here in this very valley. It was where Jacob, when he was running away from his brother Esau, had gone to live with Uncle Laban. When he comes home with his wives and his 13 children, Jacob settles here. It is Jacob who gives his son Joseph this plot of real estate on the mountain slope. And it is here that Jacob insists, when I die in Egypt, I want you to take my bones back and bury them in this valley. And so in the book of Genesis, we see that when he passed, they made a track back to the promised land and they buried Jacob here in this valley. It was here in this valley that the Samaritans built the rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. About 400 BC, they built their own temple for worshiping the Lord. And so, in other words, when Jesus stops by Jacob's bar and grill, he is stepping onto soil that is packed with history. That would be a very interesting study. The text is also a very powerful motivation for evangelism. I am sure those of you who've been in church any length of time will have heard this text preached upon as a missionary text or a church planting text. The fields are ready. The fields are ripe. People have gone ahead of you. Others have done the hard work. They have done the sowing and the cultivating and the watering, and you get to walk in, and you get to reap where others have done the work. There is so much out there in the harvest field, so much work that needs to be done. We have got to send out laborers. And then, of course, central to the text is this whole conversation around water. Yet again, another water text. It's a metaphor that is used over and over and over and over again by the Old Testament prophets. That in this desert land, literally the physical desert land, and also spiritually in this desert land, there is only one who can satisfy your thirsty soul. And there are many wells that you can drink from in this life, but only one is going to satiate your thirst. 
So I'll be honest with you, I wrestled this week. I wrestled hard with this text. What do you say in a short half hour together? What focus do we take? And, and I'll let you know that our focus is primarily gonna be one little verse, verse 26. But we're gonna come at the story in three different ways. We're gonna look at the overall story, just run through it very quickly. Uh, we are gonna then look at the greater story that is behind the scenes and undergirds this story. And then at the end, we'll, we'll anchor it and tie it to our own story. And knowing that we are gonna leave an awful lot of material on the table uncovered in these 42 verses. But the key question that I hope the Spirit of God presses into you in this weekend is this question. Are you satisfied in Jesus? That one fundamental question, if you take nothing else with you, that you would take that thought with you, are you satisfied in Jesus? And in Jesus alone. In fact, I might ask the question this way, where have you been drinking? What wells have you been drinking at? Where are you looking for satisfaction and fulfillment? What are you striving after? What are you chasing after that you think is somehow going to fulfill you? And can you say that you have found deep satisfaction for the longing of your soul? And quite honestly, as North Americans, we don't do good with those kind of conversations. Because we busy ourselves and we run and we chase after other things. And those kind of conversations are disturbing to us. So let's do a quick run first through the story, and we're going to look at four things. We are going to see his unusual ministry strategy, an unorthodox conversation, an unlikely convert, and an unambiguous application. Just four quick points. First, his unusual ministry strategy. It's quite interesting to me that Jesus, in these first six verses, does something opposite to what most leaders would do, particularly in our day. It just seems when momentum is beginning to grow, when he is getting a reputation, when the crowds are beginning to show up and follow him, his popularity is on the rise. He's now baptizing more than John the Baptist baptized, that Jesus pulls the plug. Like, why would he do this? He takes off for Galilee. The Pharisees hear that his poles are up and to the right. And Jesus is like, let's go to Galilee, and he has to go through Samaria, the text says, verse 4. Uh, the question is, why would Jesus leave the popularity in Judea and head to Samaria, an, an area where he has very little hope of a popular reception? In fact, it's interesting that it says in verse 4 that he has to go through Samaria, because frankly, he doesn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, many Jews would cross the Jordan River and go up the eastern shore intentionally to avoid going through Samaria, but it says he has to go through Samaria. There must be some deeper reason why he wants to make this trek. And, and I think the reason is because of this unorthodox conversation that we are going to see him enter into. And it is a very unorthodox conversation. From a vantage point of 2022, you can read through it and it does not jump out because of the relationships in our day and age between men and women and even strangers, men and women. But Jesus breaks three cultural barriers in this conversation. Number one, a man and a woman in the first century would have never had a conversation in public unless they were related to one another. A husband and wife, a father and daughter, a brother and sister may have a conversation in public, but a man would never talk to a strange woman in public. Secondly, a teacher, a rabbi, 
would never speak to a woman. He only taught men, and there was this thought that this woman would somehow sully his teaching, and so a rabbi wouldn't speak to women. And then thirdly, a Jew would at all costs avoid interaction with a Samaritan. We see that right in the text when she says, how is it that you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan? We need to just dive in there for just a moment because if you don't understand the animosity between these two peoples, it's very important for us to understand this. The Coles notes on who are these Samaritan people, well, they're actually distant cousins, if you will. Israel, as a nation, has civil war. And it is divided now into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. You might say like North Korea, South Korea. There are two Israels now, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is invaded and conquered by Assyria. And Assyria drags away all of the wealthy, all of the intellectual class, all of the influential people are dragged away as prisoners of war. And then other prisoners of war from other nations are transplanted into Samaria to now do, live and do life here. But we're told in 2 Kings that as they come in, that life is not good, and the king of Assyria assumes that the God of this land is upset with these people. And so he's like, you know what? Go get some of those priests from the former people who lived here. Bring those priests back, and they can tell us the ways of their God. And so 2 Kings tells us this. The priests came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Do you see it there? It's syncretism. A little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Yes, we'll fear Jehovah God. Yes, we'll worship Jehovah God. But we will also worship our idols that we brought with us from our other homeland. And so the short version is this. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews for two key reasons. They had intermarried with all these foreigners, which was a no-no. And secondly, they were worshiping the gods of all these foreign occupiers. Yes, they still worshiped Yahweh, but they also bowed down to their own idols. An unorthodox conversation. And then it leads to this unlikely convert. This woman... An unlikely convert. Not just any Samaritan woman. That's bad enough. But a woman who has a broken and painful past. A woman who's been married five times. And now she's living with a man that she's not married to. Now there's a lot that we could say there. And much has been said about this woman. But I, I, I just want to add this comment and then we're going to run past this. But I think we need to be careful not to say more than what this text actually says about this woman. Because some have made a really big deal about how an immoral woman she must have been. Of how she has bounced from husband to husband to husband to husband. And uh, the implication are her loose morals. Uh, her loose way of living. And I would just say to that line of thought, maybe. Maybe. Because the text doesn't actually say it. We might be stretching the story a bit because we're not told specifically in the text whether she has been divorced five times, whether she has been widowed five times, or some combination of the two. So we don't know the condition of how she got in and out of those previous five 
marriages, but what we do know is a little bit about women in that day. And women in that day did not have the rights that women in our day have, and it's very important to understand this. A woman in that day was entirely dependent upon her closest male relative. It's gonna sound really harsh, but it's just the way it was in that day. As a girl, it would be her father that would look after her, and if her father died, it would be an uncle or a grandfather. And later, it would be her husband if she were to marry. Now, what's interesting in that first century that if this woman married, a woman in that culture could not divorce her husband under any condition. It didn't matter how that husband treated her. He could be the worst guy on the planet, but she could not legally divorce her husband. But her husband, on the other hand, could divorce his wife for pretty well any reason. If she displeased him in any way, shape, or form, he could put her aside, but she could not put her husband aside. And if her husband died, or if he divorced her, this woman would now be completely dependent upon her extended family, and specifically, the closest male relative in her family. So maybe she has a brother. Maybe her father is still living. Maybe she has an uncle, or maybe she had sons, but she would be dependent upon some man in her life, and if there's nobody to care for her, a woman in that day only had two choices, to sell herself as a servant, or literally as a slave, or to enter into prostitution. Those literally were her choices in the first century. It is so incredibly harsh. Finally, at the end of this text, you get a very unambiguous application when Jesus is so straightforward. When Jesus says to his disciples as they return, this is precisely what I've been trying to show you, disciples, that God is always working, he has been working, and long before you arrived on the scene, others have gone before you, so would you open up your eyes, don't say it's four months more to the harvest, look what's right in front of you. That people that you may have written off as being the last person that would ever turn to faith in Christ may be more ready, more prepared, more empty, more hungry, more thirsty than what you think. The fields are white, disciples. Open your eyes. So that's the story. It's pretty straightforward. It's simple in many ways. But what I want to remind you of and dig a little bit deeper to is that there is a greater story that is going on behind this text, in fact, behind the entire book, the Gospel of John. So you've heard it nearly every weekend when we've gathered. We've reminded you of the thesis statement. John gives the reason for writing the book near the end in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why I have written this book. I have one intention. I am trying to convince you through 21 chapters that Jesus was and indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and by knowing that and by embracing and walking in faith with him that you may have life in his name. It's why I've written. So there's four gospels. You will know this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar in their content. There is tons of overlap. As you read through the three, you're like familiar story, familiar story, familiar story. But John's gospel is different. 90% of John's material is unique to this gospel. He shares an entirely different slant on Jesus' life than the other three. And more than any of the other three, I think that John pushes his readers, and he pushes us, 
to get beyond the ethnocentric world of Judaism and to say that this story that I'm writing is bigger than just you. It's bigger than just you, Jewish nation, and for us today, it's bigger than us inside the church. So just stay with me for a minute. Do you remember when Jesus started his public ministry? Back in Luke, it's recorded that after his baptism, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue, he pulls out the scroll, and he reads. He's at the beginning of his public ministry, and he reads from Isaiah 61 these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to pray, proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and he says, and this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing. And it stirs up a ruckus at Nazareth. What's interesting is the context for Isaiah 61 that he reads from is one of the clearest messianic promises in the entire Old Testament. In that section of scripture, it speaks of a servant who is coming, a servant who will come to restore the glory of God to Israel. And this particular text comes in the middle of a section of, of a prophecy about the triumphant future of Israel. And the hope that they have in the future, what we need to know is it is indeed a promise for Israel, for the Jewish nation. But woven all the way through this text is a wider promise that I am not just blessing you, Israel. I'm not just blessing you, the Jewish nation, as an end unto itself, but I am blessing you so that the nations will see my hand of abundance of the flourishing of your nation and that the nations will flock to the living God. It's the missional nature of our missional God on full display. So go back to Nazareth. Jesus reads from this and it raises a ruckus and they end up rejecting him. And Jesus is very poignant. He's like, yeah, you know what? The same thing happened to Elijah and Elisha. Same thing happened back in the Old Testament. He goes on to say, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And Elijah was sent to none of them. He didn't go to widows in Israel. He went to Zarephath. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard him say these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Because what Jesus was saying is, if you don't receive this, I'll go to those on the outside. And they rose up and they drove him out of town. Now, you might wonder where I'm headed with this. Okay? Stick with me. It's simply this. I think that in these first five chapters in particular, I think John is intentionally poking the bear. I think that John is writing his gospel in a way that highlights the missional heart of God. That there is a theme, that there is an undercurrent in these, especially these first five chapters of John, that you can easily miss as you speed read your way through it. And so let me just drop off a few breadcrumbs along this path for you to ponder and think about. So go back to a few weeks ago when he is calling his first disciples and think through Jesus' strategy because it was all wrong. Why would he call the men he called to be his disciples? He did not recall, he did not call religious leaders. He did not call influential men. He called redneck, blue-collar, uneducated men. 
It was all wrong. Men who had no social standing whatsoever, and Jesus calls them as his disciples. Remember the story of the wedding at Cana. What was interesting, and, and both preachers that weekend mentioned this text, that it was all wrong in, he, in, the, in this fact that Jesus, in that act of making water out of wine, actually destroys the ceremonial pots that have been kept meticulously pure and clean. These six pots that are set aside for a very specific purpose, and one purpose only, to purify And Jesus puts wine in the ceremonial pots. And somebody must have thought in their mind, after drinking a bit of that good wine, why those pots, Jesus? Couldn't you have found a rain barrel? Couldn't you have found a cooking pot? Why did you have to mess up the ceremonial pots? When he cleanses the temple, I pointed out to you that it was interesting that he quotes from Isaiah 56 when he's cleansing the temple. You're like, why Isaiah 56? It's a passage that talks all about the outsiders and the foreigners. In chapter 3, a couple weeks ago, he's talking to a wealthy, educated, respectable man named Nicodemus. And in essence, this guy that was the epitome of an insider, Jesus says, no, actually, you're an outsider. And here in chapter 4, he breaks so many cultural rules in talking to this hungry, broken woman. In fact, she becomes the very first person to to hear Jesus say, I am, the great I am, is what she would hear to a Samaritan woman. In the coming chapters, and just mention it, he's gonna heal a Roman official's son. He's gonna go to the pool at Bethesda and heal a man that no religious leader would have gone near for fear of being defiled. All of this you're saying, okay, so, so what? So what? Where are you headed with this? Well, it is simply this, that there is a greater story that is happening behind the scenes. And I think that John is intentionally setting us up to see the expansive missional heart of our God. That Jesus is willingly and openly and regularly messing up the religious status quo. And the religious leaders, honestly, they don't know what to do with him. They just do not know what to do with this guy named Jesus. And so later on, we will hear them say that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You're hanging out with the wrong people, Jesus. We just do not get it. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I actually heard a pastor a couple weeks ago ask the question, if Jesus showed up in Abbotsford today, would he go to any of our churches? Probably not. He'd probably be out at the pub. If he did what he did in this day, he wouldn't be hanging out with us. He'd be hanging out on the streets. But to press this one layer deeper, we can't read this story and not be blown away that Jesus' very first revelation of his identity as the I am is in this text. It's the very first time that he self-identifies as the Messiah. And John's gospel will use this phrase, I am, seven distinct times with various metaphors. Uh, The seven I am's of the gospel of John is a famous little series. A metaphor, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection, I am the way, I am the vine. Seven of them coupled with a metaphor. 
But here he uses the I am as a formal name when he says, I am he. The one standing in front of you, you have just mentioned that the Messiah, the Christ is coming. The one standing in front of you, I am he. And when he utters those words, it is loaded with prophetic power. It is loaded. So go back to Exodus 3. Moses is being sent to Egypt to call the people out of slavery. And he says, but who should I say if they ask who sent you? And God says, I am who I am. That is my name, Exodus 3. You will call me I am. And so tell them that the I am has sent you. And you get to the end of Moses' life and he is writing his memoirs. He's writing the history of God's work among his people. And he includes this phrase about God in Deuteronomy 32. See now that I, even I, am he... And there is no God beside me. And that particular construction, I, I am he, builds throughout the Old Testament. I am who I am. I am he. In some texts, it's I, 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 I am he. All of these descriptors of who he is until the name, the great I am, gets embedded in the spiritual psyche of God's people. And when Isaiah starts prophesying about the servant of the Lord who is going to come to rescue, he uses this phrase over and over and over and over again. I would just want to run you through, and I'll, I'll throw the references on the screen. We don't have time to read them all. But just let me point this out, that Isaiah 40, where it begins to say, comfort, comfort my people. And it says there, the Lord is coming with salvation and he's going to gather you like a shepherd gathers the lambs up in his arms. And he asks then the question, to whom will you compare me? And then he goes on for like five chapters to talk about who he is. Chapter 41, verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. 41.13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. Chapter 42 opens with this idea. So let me tell you about my servant. Let me tell you about the anointed one. Let me tell you about this one who is coming. And in 42 verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Chapter 43 verse 10, you are my witness. That you may know and understand that I am he. Chapter 43, verse 11, I, I am the Lord. Beside me, there is no savior. 43, 13, I am he. There is none that can deliver from my hand. 43, 15, I am the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator. 43, 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions and will not remember your sins. Chapter 44, verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. I, I am he. Over and over and over and over again, I am he. And it's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And eventually it's translated into the Greek language. And the words in the Greek language are ego ami, I, I am he, and written out in Greek, and you can look it up yourself, it's ego ami, and it is those very words, those very words, ego ami, that Jesus uses with this Samaritan woman. The one who stands in front of you, I, I am he. 
We know that one day the Messiah will come, she says. And did Jesus whisper it? Did he say, I am he? Did he say it with frustration? Open your eyes, woman, I am he. Or with compassion? Oh, woman, if you only knew the one who is standing in front of you, I, I am he, ego a me. And whatever it looked like in the physical realm, in that moment, in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realms around it, I have got to think that it boomed like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, rising up in power and going, if you only knew who's standing in front of you, oh, my dear sister, come and drink and you will thirst no more. And so the disciples return and Jesus is exhausted. I think he's exhausted from the trip and he's exhausted from this great revelation that he has just given. He has just made the most profound declaration of his identity and thereby his ministry intent that he is the great I am and he has come to pour out living water on a thirsty people. And he's declaring in this moment and he's declaring with all the weight of Old Testament prophecy behind him that there is only one who can satisfy and oh, how I wish we had time to just rest there. I wish we had time to wrestle with it and to chew on it and to open our Bibles and to turn from text to text to text to text through the Old Testament as layer upon layer upon layer of expectation is being built that one day the Lord's chosen servant is going to come and walk among us that the Lord's servant is going to pick up our sorrows. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not crush. That he will take our hurts and he will take our pain. And that he will enter into our desert lives and he will pour out living water. And then flip forward to John chapter 4 and hear Jesus say, If you're thirsty, come and drink. I am he. Because honestly, friends, this is our story. Every one of us, in one way, shape, or form, are that woman at the well. And so let me go back to those questions I asked you at the start. Where have you been drinking? What have you been chasing? What are you striving after? Are you finding satisfaction for your soul? Because what this text tells us, and so many others like it, is that there is only one who can and will satisfy us. Charles Spurgeon, very famous preacher, said the heart is as insatiable as the grave until Jesus enters it. And then it is a full cup to overflowing. It's a reflection on what Augustine had said almost a thousand years earlier, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, our God. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. There's a lot of famous African-American hymns and choruses that were written by people who were sorely oppressed under the ungodliness of racism and injustice and yet clinging like crazy to Jesus. And one of the famous ones simply says this, in the morning when I rise, 
In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Dark midnight is my cry. Dark midnight is my cry. Dark midnight is my cry. Give me Jesus. And when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. And the chorus is this, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. So Saturday morning, two weeks ago, there were two members of Northview Church that did not know that that would be their final Saturday this side of heaven. Two men with very different stories. And yet their final hours were literally just a few hours apart from one another. Aaron Hansen was just 29 years old. Ed Clausen was just 79 years old. Aaron died in an accident. Ed passed of cancer. And what struck me that week as I was reflecting on the death of these two brothers was that both of these brothers knew and loved the Lord. And we rejoice in Aaron's memorial and Ed's memorial that will happen on Monday. We rejoice with them that they, even now they're in the presence of God. And yet, from an earthly point of view, both of those lives were too short. Both of them were too short. And yet the truth is, friends, what struck me again afresh two weeks ago was that each one of us is very soon going to follow these two brothers. Each one of us, very soon. And the only thing that we take with us from this life into the next is our relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. That if we have made him our source and our well, our living water in this life, then we are guaranteed life eternal. And you see, it is a message that all of us need to embrace that only Jesus satisfies. Because our world gives us dozens of other pursuits, power, pleasure, fame, and fortune, all the things the world has to offer. And so let me ask you again as we close, where have you been drinking? What have you been chasing? What have you been striving after? And are you finding satisfaction in and with Jesus and Jesus alone? So we're going to close uh, in a different way. Rather than me praying, I want to read a prayer over you. A.W. Tozer was a, a very well-known alliance pastor a generation ago, and he was a man who had an insatiable appetite to know the Lord. And in his book, The Pursuit of God, he shares a really rich prayer. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and at all of our campuses, would you stand with me? And instead of closing your eyes for a prayer, I want you to watch because we'll put the words on the screen. And I want to say these words of this prayer over you. And as we read through them and as the worship team comes to lead us in a song to close, just let these words roll over you and make them your prayer, if you're willing. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, that I may know thee indeed. Bring, begin in me a new work within me.
Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away, and then give me grace to rise and follow thee. Up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long, in Jesus' name, amen. Where have you been drinking?